1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yat Hasami, a host of the channel, In my research as a doctoral student in the School of English at the University of Leeds. I'm working on ecology and agriculture in mid-20th century Lebanon, and my project is supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today on the show, we'll be talking with Max Ayl about his new book, A People's Green New Deal. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at Wageningen University's Rural Sociology Group in the Netherlands, as well as an associated researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment, and an editor with Labor and Society and Agrarian South. My current work is on the intellectual history of heterodox theories of development, emerging especially from Tunisia, but also to a certain extent from Egypt, and the cross-fertilization of these ideas across North and West Africa through the hub of Dakar, especially through the work of Samir Amin and the cluster of institutions he was working with, and I'm especially focusing on alternative technology, alternative forms of development, which is very different from some of the contemporary talk around alternatives to development, and I'm also working on a manuscript about the National Liberation Movement in Tunisia and the role of peasants in driving that National Liberation Movement in the context of the peasant role in worldwide decolonization during that period.
1: Wonderful. Well, it's really wonderful to uh, speak with you today. And let's turn now to your book, A People's Green New Deal. Uh, Let's hear the origin story of this book. How did you come to write it?
0: So I always tell people that this book was essentially uh, an accident. I should have been working on my work, uh, focusing on my work on the intellectual history of heterodox theories of development. And I, quite by happenstance, was writing a bit on the ecological debate in the Global North about a Green New Deal uh, when Ocasio-Cortez dropped her Green New Deal. And because I've been writing for the public on a variety of topics, usually related somehow to um, uh, uh, development, imperialism, ecology, uh, climate, uh, I attempted to publish a few articles and book reviews on the topic that took what I thought was not the particularly radical step of actually assessing who Ocasio-Cortez was, reading the actual context uh, and text of what her Green New Deal was, was saying, looking at the institutional networks it was bound to and thinking about how that was articulating with uh, prevailing social democratic uh, or democratic socialist politics in the imperial core in the United States and to a lesser extent in Britain. And this was, in fact, a reaction to the fact that it was uh, there was an aggressive hyping going on over the Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal uh, that was really being represented as eco-socialists. And I thought this was just a a ludicrous statement on its face. And if you actually look at what's going on now, right, everyone totally forgot the Ocasio-Cortez was supposed to be an eco-socialist. This is no longer part of the discussion. But at the time, it was uh, it was uh, it was perceived or proposed or promulgated to be sectarian to actually assess what the, to to assess uh, what was actually going on with Ocasio-Cortez. And so I had a number of articles that were just flat out rejected. They said, we're not interested in this approach. And I was quite taken aback. I said, wow uh, this is, seems like a very important or at least uh, uh, an approach that should be a part of the overall debate about political ecology in our current moment. Uh, is it going to be a priori uh, disallowed from entering the public sphere? And the answer to that was evidently yes so i decided if i cannot get this perspective out via the uh, wide array of journals then i'm going to see if i can write a book about it so i wrote to uh, david shulman at pluto and he was very supportive and i spent the next eight uh, eight months writing a book about it
1: wow so let's stay with the imperial core Um, John Maynard Keynes and Thomas Robert Malthus; These two figures and their legacies haunt your book. I would like to ask you about how you understand the manifestations of their ideas in the public debate around the climate development, social welfare nexus, as you call it. Why do these two figures matter and how do you use their legacy to describe and distinguish trends in the discourse to which you are contributing? And how does the thought of Ursula K. Le Guin, who also towers as a muse in your book, interact with Keynesian and Malthusian ideas? So
0: Keynes was basically offering a theoretical perspective on how to respond to the Great Depression, um, amongst other things. And... He basically said, okay, the state needs to engineer a large amount of spending, of counter-cyclical spending, in order to escape from the Great Depression, which is, of course, ultimately what happened. Now, it has been essentially suppressed in the discussion of the Green New Deal, that the proposals for a Green New Deal were first of all originally conceived as jobs for all programs, and that second of all, these were conceived as a kind of uh, ecological green Keynesianism that was supposed to uh, propel a kind of retrenchment and reindustrialization of the U.S. and to a lesser extent the U.K. economies. And so, lurking behind them is the notion of. How exactly the ruling class should respond to one the the pervasive deindustrialization, which is ongoing in the core, and associated industrialization, which is occurring in East Asia, in particular China, uh, and how the deindustrialization, in fact, represents a systemic threat in a certain sense to the long-term uh, permanence of uh, Anglo-American hegemony within the world system. So this was sort of one response. Um, and it's kind of been uh, kind of quietly inherited among some of the social democratic propositions which say, OK, we're going to carry out a wide range of counter-cyclical social programs. We're going to partially decommoditize. We're going to go further and partially decommodify certain spheres of public life. We're going to uh, put certain forms of um, the ecology off limits to ca- capitalist desecration and externalization of costs, but this will be a proposal that will explicitly not take on capitalism, at least for 20 years, which is the same thing as not taking on capitalism at, at, at all. So th- that, that's the the background of, of that aspect of the book. Malthus, now Malthus was not a, a consistent theorist, and he's often... Uh, deployed in uh, very cynical ways to attack the ecological movement. I mean, Malthus was, first of all, primarily concerned with elaborating a kind of ramshackle, ad hoc or post hoc uh, theoretical justifications for denying alms to the poor. Uh, and he said, "Well, the poor will tend to overbreed, and we shouldn't encourage that, and uh, and kindred notions." Uh, so, uh, in contemporary climate chatter, Malthusianism is is basically deployed against the notion that there are some form of uh, flexible but still exist in uh, ecological limits to the Earth system. So if you say, okay, there, there is uh, a limit to how many resources we can reasonably access, for example, for renewable transition, people say, okay, that's a, that's a Malthusian uh, perspective. Uh, it, it's quite the opposite, not least because it, the, there's a way of articulating the position that there are uh, limits to le- easily accessible resources to point out that – both those limits and the cost of accessing uh, resources represent distributional problems and those of us raising this issue point out that we don't want to inf- uh, we don't want to extract these resources and impose uh, their costs on the weakest sectors of the world population the most vulnerable sectors of the world population this is an Anti-internationalist politics. So it's kind of topsy turvy that uh, Malthusianism is deployed then as a stick to beat uh, people who have some sort of cognizance of the role of uh, of of the ecology and the fact that the ecology is uh, is not uh, indefinitely kind of reformable by technology um, and. It's uh, yeah, and it's it's ironic. This is being used to kind of assault uh, people who have a, a popular eco-socialist orientation uh, of uh, w- whether it's a popular internationalist and anti-imperialist eco-socialist orientation or otherwise. Malthusianism is basically deployed to attack any and all kind of notions of eco-socialism or uh, degrowth, which is anti-capitalist and is increasingly shifting in the direction of eco-socialism although there are uh, certain barriers which remain to be surmounted to affect that convergence. Um, You know, Ursula Lagoon um, is uh, helps us uh, see the future. Uh, You know, part of the problem, I think, of both of the above uh, theorists is they they. They block a way of reconceiving of the future in a way that is uh, can can make the world big enough for everybody. Now, of course, Ursula Lagoon's uh, utopias are always have always historically been. Ambiguous, uh, which I think is helpful in the sense that uh, uh, building utopia under capitalism is inherently uh, an ambiguous endeavor because you actually have to build uh, utopia or struggle for socialism, is a vocabulary that I prefer to hold on to, uh, under conditions that are not of your own choosing, which therefore distorts inevitably any and all projects for uh, socialist transition. Uh, and so this this idea of both holding on to utopia and uh, thinking of, seriously about utopia, and also understanding that uh, utopia will be what she called a, a flawed utopia, uh, which also means the uh, the struggle for utopia will be flawed, is I think a uh, helpful corrective to a lot of uh, prevailing thinking, which uh, will attack both uh, utopian thinking on the whole, and they'll say, oh, that's not pragmatic, that's not reasonable, that's not possible, Uh, and will also at the same time attack the movements that are struggling towards utopia from their own particular position as irredeemably flawed precisely because they are blighted by the conditions of, uh, of their birth and also blighted by the resistance and oppressions that capitalism and imperialism inflict upon them as they attempt to walk to utopia. And So the the heat of this assault will inevitably uh, warp uh, some of these institutions, and that's actually in their very nature. That's in the nature of struggle. So I think uh, she is, is very helpful about that. I think uh, something else that she is doing that is uh, quite remarkable and important is she is bringing our focus to uh, softer utopias in a certain sense. That is, she is, although although kind of the the austere worlds that she usually uses to build utopia are. are more austere than the conditions uh, humanity faces in on, on this earth to be sure but what I think is important is to say okay you can actually have a utopia which is not which uh, embraces high technology which embraces uh, sophisticated social interdependence which is uh, modern in in many senses but which at the same time does not, turn technology or turn a particular Jetsonian vision of, uh, of modernity into a goal in and of itself or a virtue in and of itself, but that rather uh, we should understand that uh, the technical system and the social system are both embedded, interweaving, constitute one another, and that also uh, you can have a utopia which is not resting on uh, these kind of Jetsonian or, or Star Wars, Star Trek style, uh, extremely advanced and, in fact, in the current period, non-existent technical systems and that we can have softer, uh, more grounded uh, utopias that uh, recognize that, uh, in fact, the utopia is meant to serve humans rather than the other way around.
1: I really like what you were saying about ambiguity um, uh, in her worlds. Let's move from theory uh, to plans. In your first chapter, Great Transition or Fortress Eco-Nationalism, You draw attention to how top-down, world-scale ecological financial engineering plans have gained traction as part of an effort to mitigate risk and contain the so-called threat multiplier of climate change or global warming. How do the contemporary Green New Deal plans, which you discuss, utilize these concepts and what aspects of climate justice are missing from these plans and why?
0: So One very important thing to, to put on the table first is that uh, the great transition plans that I analyzed in the first chapter, which continue to structure the ruling class response to climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and so forth, tend not to be framed, at least in the United States, as Green New Deal. So there is a, a European Green New Deal, which is, uh, and and so it is, it, it does adopt that. Framing in Europe. Now, what these proposals are essentially trying to do is to carry out a wide range of institutional and technical interventions that basically imagine one, the fundamental continuity of uh, hierarchy, uh, and often capitalist social relations, although I don't think they're necessarily uh, attached to capitalism per se as a mode of organizing the society. Uh, Two, they basically envision uh, ecosystem services and nature uh, and also even the renewable transition as greenfield investments, as new arenas for uh, exploitation and for accumulation. And whether that's the Uh, Turning into commodities, ecosystem services, turning the carbon market into a real live way of supposedly dealing with global warming. This is something that's been attempted constantly uh, since 1992, although with uh, very limited success. Or for that matter, for uh, kind of saying that the the renewable uh, transition in the global south should occur through what Daniel Gabor calls the Wall Street consensus, which basically would rob third world states of uh, sovereign control to change the terms of the investments that go into their country and basically lock in – semi-permanent revenue streams for the governments and the bondholders and the investors in the north who would engineer these investments in the renewable transitions and basically to say, okay, this can be a new arena of profit. And this is very much actually particularly attractive within the European sphere where there are basically negative real interest rates. Right. And so there's a lot of capital that's so afraid of the risks of actually entering the financial markets, of entering investment, uh, of entering the the stock markets that it's currently sitting on the sideline and in fact losing its value, losing the value of money is actually uh, declining for uh, Eurozone bondholders, for example. So it's about getting all that investment into Uh, more profitable arenas and actually creating the political institutional infrastructure and saying, okay, this climate crisis is a crisis, sure, but we can just use it as a new arena for uh, the profit of um, big finance, monopoly capital, and so forth, right? So, I mean, I think it's self-evident that these proposals – lack any sort of environmental justice aspect or uh, just transition aspect. I mean, it's in their very nature, right? This is in the very nature of capitalism as a social system that is antithetical to uh, justice concerns uh, that it is seeking to uh, expel onto the socially vulnerable, the ecological costs and the social costs of whatever internal contradictions that it wants to resolve. So obviously, for example, uh, taking this example of the the Wall Street consensus, uh, if it's permanently robbing from third world countries, the right to renegotiate the terms of the installation and uh, profit streams to be derived from putting in place renewable infrastructure. And uh, and obviously these terms, as they would be originally opposed, would be highly injurious to uh, third broad states. They're going to overpay for them and they're going to use technology. They're, they're reliant on Northern technology, which they often don't hold. And so if the balance of power shifts and they say, okay, well, we want to nationalize that. And that's actually a very common thing that uh, third world states should want to nationalize northern uh, investments, northern um, uh, industrial installations, and so forth. I mean, this is the entire history of of decolonization. If they should do so, then they would suddenly be Vulnerable to suit in international tribunals, and this is similar to what happened in the North America under national. I really
1: um struck by what you're saying about the injuries of the great transition, um, and also um, the history of nationalization of industries and its potential in um, eco-nationalism. So let's move now to eco-modernism, a central theme of your second chapter. You historicize ecological modernization theory by rooting it in Cold War history, and you also differentiate it from environmentalism. In the context of this discussion, one of the manifestos that you present, Full Automatic Luxury Communism by Aaron Bastani, proposes to mine the asteroid belt for minerals such as platinum and nickel what do you make of such a science fiction proposition and why is it relevant to your argument about leftist eco-modernism? So these are not necessarily
0: serious propositions in the sense that very few people, including NASA itself, are uh, taking the the more outlandish aspects of the eco-modernist left very seriously. Uh, especially things like asteroid mining, pulling asteroids into near-Earth orbit, and so forth. Uh, Other aspects, of course, are taken extremely seriously. For example, he uh, outright defends the Green Revolution, and there is currently uh, a Green Revolution of sorts, uh, although with uh, horrible results ongoing in Africa, for example. So it ends up being uh, a defense of um, of the of the socio-technological strategies of uh, monopoly capital and the uh, northern development agencies and so forth, so it actually ends up in defense of that. So uh, there, there's a so this discourse has a mix of effects. Now, why is it uh, allowed to be published, and what effects does it have on consciousness? Are I think the the more interesting uh, questions that we need to understand and address now basically these proposals are comforting uh and they actually reflect the kind of ideological default we can say of people in the global north of a variety of of social and ideological persuasions but primarily somewhere uh, uh, who consider themselves somehow supportive of uh redistributive politics but are not very comfortable with actually existing uh, anti-systemic struggles who uh, carry with them the baggage of the historic uh, Western Euro-American contempt for uh, the peasantry, uh, pastoralists and so forth, the forest dwellers, uh, and basically uh, are ablated from the actual core struggles for social transformation and national liberation, which have always come from the periphery of the world system, which makes sense. Uh, The people who are most oppressed are more or less the most likely ones to demand the most revolutionary upheaval upheaval of the social system. I mean, we know this is uh, just kind of almost arithmetic. Right. Um, And this kind of uh, catatonic uh, theology of modernization coming from Aaron Bastani, who doesn't know anything about uh, ecology or much else, uh, serves the function of maintaining uh, this kind of progressive sectors as basically at a distant remove from the necessary social subjects of transformation on a world scale. Uh, and that is why it, it that type of perspective is published. Actually, in the New York Times, they said, "Oh, here's a luxury communist position." And it was published mm-hmm. in the New York Times. It was very ridiculous. I mean, do you want to tell me that the New York Times is a herald of a communist revolution, or that this type of communism? is actually the ideal type of communism from the perspective of the New York Times. This doesn't mean there's a conspiracy going on. They're like, they just say, okay, this is, uh, this is agreeable. Why is it agreeable? Well, it's agreeable because it's not centering Filipino peasants making eight cents an hour or eight cents a day uh, picking picking pineapples for uh, American multi, multinationals, right? That is not the type of non-luxury communism that, would, uh, that is not a type of communism that would be very attractive to readers of the New York Times and the publishers of the New York Times, whereas uh, Bastanian hallucinations are comfortable for uh, such publishers and such readers. And so that is why we uh, see it in front of us. As, uh, as to why it didn't encounter uh, a greater amount of friction and challenge, this is a very uh, different question
1: nice so let's stick with anti-systemic struggles in chapter three you turn to energy use and degrowth you also offer a definition of eco-socialism as the imposition of a different social logic onto the productive forces the notion that energy systems should be run to balance the warring needs of avoiding ecological damage and providing necessary energy for human beings is this compatible with a program for what you term a worldwide energy democracy why or why not absolutely so any sort of energy transition
0: uh, other than if you want to use to use uh, you know wooden windmills to power civilization uh, requires extraction of minerals and highly elaborate uh, industrial processes in order to build turbines and even to have run over the river uh, hydroelectric, which is very distinct from large dams, in order to build solar panels and so forth. right? So these are all going to incur ecological damages when the raw materials are extracted from the earth. There is no way around it they are also uh, capable of imposing ecological damages when they're installed. So both their extraction and uh, their installation and subsequent use uh, can produce uh, distribution conflicts or class conflicts. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on that has been done about this, for example, in southern Mexico for wind parks in India. Um, uh, very good work, Uh in Spain in 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 the in the area around Barcelona that's dealing with this topic and so we know that just as uh the fossil extraction and distribution uh, implies struggles over uh consequences so does renewable energy now does that mean we shouldn't shift to a different energy system? Or does that mean we should have uh, social systems that do not rely on uh, these industrial forms of energy gathering? Now, my answer to that is, of course not, right? And I think that's the answer of the overwhelming majority of the planet. I think everyone wants, uh, more or less, uh, with exceptions, wants uh, electricity. The question is how to balance the costs uh, of the c- creation of the machines and the uh, the installation and use of the machines versus uh, people's desire for clean electricity. And that can only be such a balancing of costs, can only occur in a serious way when you have uh, an egalitarian political and social system that can make those decisions in a collective way and make... A- reasonable tabulations of costs and benefits, not using uh, the dollar sign, the dollars and cents to decide this is a cost, this is a benefit, but to be substantively rational and decide, okay, these are the prices that we are willing to accept as as a society in order to have access to energy right and i think you know this this way of putting the issue this is uh, although I, I don't think it's um, you know i don't i don't think i've come up with some sort of advanced conceptual innovation or theoretical innovation remotely in, in stating it that way but i do think that posing it that way does not seem to be very common in a lot of the literature that i read that i read on these topics
1: So let's shift now from the worldwide perspective, uh, worldwide level to the level of the US and the legislature. You conclude chapter four in the first part of your book with an assessment of the problems of green social democracy. In this chapter, you contend with Naomi Klein's work as well as the US Green New Deal draft legislation by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Edward Markey. How do you see green social democracy? And what are the key problems? Green social democracy
0: was, and still is, although at this point it's a bit having a zombie existence after the failure of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, was basically a bid on uh, electoral uh, and legislative transformation to green social democracy in the north. And it was kind of a wager that this uh, you could install ever more uh, progressive legislators like uh, Ocasio-Cortez or Jamal Bowman, and that we were also going to successfully elect Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, and that they would then be able to hold these positions and implement legislation that would successfully uh, carry out these forms of green ecological transition alongside a widespread downward redistribution of wealth within the Euro-Atlantic states. Now, this had a lot of problems from the outset, right? I mean, basically, it sought to replicate the post-1945 experience of social democracy in the Europe European core and its uh, Fordist cousin in the United States. And if you wanted to rerun that play, which is not a politics I support in the first place, one should recognize, of course, that those redistributive uh, policy regimes took place when there was the threat of very different ways of organizing uh, the social system that were real live historical alternatives namely china and the soviet union uh, and the national liberation struggles which were occurring across africa and asia and then uh, cuba and that these represented to a lot of people alternatives for how to organize society that did not uh reflect uh the continuity of monopoly capitalist uh, forms of social organization. Now, those threats are not uh, in place and the kind of widespread insurrectionary atmospheres that occur that were in place in Europe and the United States uh, from the 30s onwards do not exist in the European core, I mean, and the United States right now. There's not a sufficient threat to compel the ruling class to accept Uh, widespread redistribution of wealth. Uh, So even uh, accepting the terms of social democracy, which I do not, these were uh, dead ends in the beginning. Furthermore, uh, the very fact that if you are carrying out a process of of, of accepting the continuity of capitalism, capitalism is a system, of exploitation. I mean, you're extracting surplus value from workers, whether that's workers in the core or whether that's workers elsewhere. Uh, and capitalism, as a historical social system, has always been based on wealth transfers from the periphery, like from India, from the uh, from the Indies, uh, from Central America, from Latin America, from Africa uh to the european states i mean that is what colonialism was that's what neocolonialism was and is and this is built into historical capitalism so if you're accepting that uh that so if you're accepting social democracy you're also accepting uh that social democracy is actually a system for regulating rather than uh eliminating capitalism and you're also accepting that there will be uh, a softening of capitalism in the european core or Euro-American core without uh, taking on the wealth transfers, the value transfers from the periphery to that core, is basically saying we are not interested in building an international struggle at the outset. And, and again, this is uh, this is not a politics that I subscribe to. And if it's uh, that is the implicit politics, which uh, was in a great deal of the chatter about a Green New Deal, and this is part of why I wrote the book to say, okay, Let us simply clarify that there are different political projects, ambitions, and horizons that are contending for influence. Let us clarify the distinctions between them and let the chips fall where they may.
1: Value transfer is a concept that um, rings loudly with me. Um, And I want to move now to the second and final part of your book, which features a passionate and comprehensive description of a people's Green New Deal. You address a range of sectors, from urban planning to transport and industry. You animate these discussions with insights on technology, from philosopher Ivan Illich, among others. Why do the conceptualizations from Illich appeal to you?
0: So Illich is a a very interesting figure, Uh, completely completely disinterested in uh, socialism or communism, and not really using the vocabulary of uh, imperialism, but... uh, Nevertheless, Illich was stating in a very clear way that uh, the technical systems, the technologies that are being selected for, installed, uh, and implemented, uh, spread, diffused at any given historical moment are not neutral, right? They are, at the time of their crafting, they reflect those, they reflect the interests of those who decide that they should be crafted. And then in terms of the Patterns of their deployment and subsequent modification—they again uh, reflect the existing balance of social forces in terms of how they are subsequently developed, unfurled, and then kind of locked in, and then uh, restructuring social formations around them. So Illich really makes very clear that technology is uh, is not uh, is not neutral. Um, that it is, for example, you know, he he was interested in. Contemporary medicine, as he pointed out, I mean, contemporary medicine uh, in in the West, while it has positive aspects, very much reflected um, the the capitalist organization uh, and the interventionist also uh, orientation of. Um, Uh, of the society and of the medical system. And so he was extremely critical of that. And that's why we have the types of medical systems that we do, which are primarily uh, interventionist and reactive rather than community-oriented and preventative, right? So I think Illich was uh, extremely, has been and is still ought to be read very carefully by people who are interested in understanding that uh, technological technological technology is not at all socially neutral. I mean, there are certainly ways that technology can be recuperated for uh, popular use. Uh, and uh, Kalashnikovs can be used uh a- a- by colonizers, and also against colonizers. And books can be used to spread uh, reactionary propaganda, and books can also be used to spread uh, the reading of Karl Marx and Lenin. So this is not to say that um, th- these uh, these are these are single-edged knives. The knives cut both ways, but they they require struggles first of all to uh, democratize and put these technologies under popular control. And furthermore, a lot of the technologies there's just there are uh, it, it's going to be very hard to nearly impossible or the, to to do so. Or they represent uh, the preferred terrain of struggle or the preferred uh, the preferred mechanism of oppression in a specific context of power and powerlessness. And there are alternatives at play that are being suppressed uh, in the very process of the implementation of a certain set of technologies. So I think this needs to be brought forward so we don't just accept these, uh, the kind of neoliberal or capitalist uh, or Western myth that technology isn't inherently neutral, or for that matter, that technology, uh, a new technology is inherently uh, beneficial. And it's that we should uh, operate from a default of questioning the introduction of new technology not to question it um as a, as a kind of atavism or to say that we reject it out of hand but to say it's on you to justify why we should be adopting this technology and this very much flusters people people will be like what do you mean we should justify it
1: and uh yeah questioning the justice of technology um and these ideas around technology also bring to mind Gabriel Rockhill's work um, on uh, development and um, technology as well. Um, so penultimate question, your final chapters, A Planet of Fields and Green Anti-Imperialism and the National Question, draw attention to the centrality of agroecology in any Green New Deal, as well as the Cochabamba Working Group's position on restorative justice in the realm of climate debt. So what is your vision for dignified agriculture and sovereignty?
0: So if we look at any of the examples of successful development, uh, successful meaning let us say, uh, successful in the very narrow sense of uh, increased per capita access to certain goods necessary for survival or for for a kind of complex uh, life. We know that agriculture is absolutely central. It's always been central. Agriculture was absolutely central even to European um, industrialization. Agriculture has also been uh, extremely central to the serious uh, attempted uh, development. And paths out of poverty that were took place in the non-Western world um, post-1945, for example, China, um, uh, North Korea. Uh, agriculture was extremely important uh, in uh, contemporary Cuban uh, resilience throughout the special period. Um, agriculture was put on the table with varying degrees of success in um, Venezuela, Bolivia, Zimbabwe. That is all the you know, hot zones of our contemporary world system. And this is because agriculture is the only sector where you can actually extract uh, endogenously a surplus. I mean, if you want to industrialize, and I'm very much in favor of a modulated industrialization, you need... A surplus. I mean, you need access to technology. You need access to machine tools. If you don't have them, you might need access to minerals. You need access to intellectual property. Which, uh, if if you're smart, you endogenize and pirate. But you need capital both, um, uh, uh, you need agriculture to get capital. And you need agriculture, first of all, to feed your population, so to break through the food grain restraint. Um, You need agriculture in order that you don't have to actually spend scarce scarce capital on importing foodstuffs. And then if you have an excess of uh, agricultural production you can either sell it on uh, international markets to get the hard capital needed for certain forms of developmental inputs or uh, you can do secondary processing on that which is the basis of uh, certain forms of industrial production now there are actually no other alternatives right which is also why this discussion about agriculture is repressed because people in fact, I think, don't really want there to be alternatives. But putting that to the side, agroecology, right, is um, a way of furthermore extending our notion of agriculture's central role in the developmental process Is saying, first of all, we can have a greater surplus in the first place if, uh, at the farm level if we reduce the input costs first of all. So if we can work with natural fertilizers instead of uh, inorganic fertilizers, then we have successfully reduced the cost, which increases uh, on-farm well-being because you've increased the surplus available to the farmer. They no longer have to sell part of their produce in order to secure uh, uh, capital-intensive inputs. That's one thing. But another thing is that agroecology is uh, 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 can be a way of resisting uh, perturbations that come from global warming, for example. For example, uh, they, it, it produces an agriculture that's far more resistant to drought, to blight, Uh, to floods. Uh, And we know from widespread uh, social scientific work and farmer surveys that have been done on uh, agriculture during and after drought events, during and after hurricanes in Central America, that um, That agroecology, precisely because it is trying to mimic more closely or move more closely towards the functioning, how how natural agroecosystems function, is a lot more resilient than monocrop agriculture. So this kind of makes it a very necessary transition tool for our contemporary societies. And in fact, I was just reading an article two days ago about how uh, regenerative agricultural methods are actually being widely used in, uh, in Zimbabwe. Um, and this is part, a part, not all, but it's a part of how they have a, a record corn harvest this year. So it's very important for uh, just transition within the world system. It also... Uh, Instead of uh, emitting, for example, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it actually allows agriculture to be a carbon-negative, a carbon dioxide-negative element of our productive system. So instead of agriculture uh, basically releasing carbon from the soil and turning it into carbon dioxide and actually contributing to the problem of global warming, you can actually use sustainable forms of agriculture to sow a great deal of of carbon within the upper and lower layers of soil. You actually turn it into a natural solution to some portion whether it's 1% or whether it's 20% of the climate crisis right so it's i think it's absolutely central it's also very central for biodiversity preservation right because you're not using pesticides you actually you don't rip apart the the traffic cycle you don't rip apart the traffic web you aren't uh, carrying out this uh, genocide of insects which then uh, ricochets up the food chain to causing massive damage to all the animals that prey on insects including birds uh, and reptiles and so you end up with a much more regenerative agricultural system, which ends up preserving biodiversity while at the same time improving small farmer livelihoods and making the overall system uh, more uh, sustainable from a carbon cycle perspective, right? So there's a lot of positive effects that can be uh, achieved and secured through a worldwide transition to agroecology.
1: That's an amazing um, discussion of agroecology and its cascading regenerative and economic advantages. Thank you, Max. So to wrap up today, um, tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days. You hinted at it in some projects in the bio, but it'd be great to hear more.
0: So I'm working on, um, I'm in fact working on, on three or four projects at the same time, which is not what, what I advise anybody to do. Uh, my my dissertation work was um, trying to understand the role of uh, smallholders and pastoralists in Tunisian decolonization and how Tunisian decolonization actually uh, relied on the decolonization process, <coughs> the decolonization process that had occurred in Egypt, um, the nationalization of the Suez Canal, uh, the uh, nationalization of a, of a variety of foreign owned um, industrial concerns, and so forth, and also the peasant war which was occurring in Algeria. Uh, and so I need to turn this into a, a book which I'm working on. I have uh, a huge amount of archives um, from uh, that the, the French gathered during their military occupation of Tunisia. And so I'm working on a, a manuscript, basically. This is basically about the the Tunisian peasant war. Uh, that's one. And then I'm working on... Uh... Uh, another research project, which is linked to the intellectual history of heterodox theories of development in the Arab region, but especially Tunisia in the 1970s and 80s. There was an agroecologist, Slahdine Al-Amami, whose whose face and name were just added to the 5 dinar bill in Tunisia. Uh, One of the most important um, ecological figures that I have encountered uh, in the third world, and he's very much unknown, including in Tunisia herself. Uh, And then I'm working on the a critique of the planning process that occurred in Tunisia in the 1960s and also trying to understand it as prophylactic against kind of more radical and anti imperialist attempts at popular development, which were occurring uh, elsewhere in the Arab republics during that period alongside, uh, you know, which were marked by widespread although still delimited, land to the tiller, agrarian reforms, and so forth. So those are, those are the three projects. And then I'm also uh, working on a kind of uh, more theoretical update of a People's Green New Deal that is basically treating ecology and national development planning from a national liberation perspective.
1: That last project is very intriguing. Uh, maybe in a future interview, we'll get to discuss that book, Max, Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a great pleasure and privilege to speak with you. Take good care. Thank you so much.